Our message this morning is titled, The Dead Man's Joy. It's a joyful message to preach, but it's also a bit sobering. There's a saying that says, as we get older, we attend more funerals than weddings. And I believe that to be true. The book of Ecclesiastes tells us that this life is nothing more than a vapor. And it gives us the image of trying to capture a little puff of smoke in our hand. And as, as we try to capture it, it, maybe we can grasp it for just a moment and then it's gone. And as we pass through difficult seasons with the loss of loved ones, other difficult seasons in life, these things make us contemplate our own death. And sooner or later we have to realize that I am running the course of life And sooner or later, my race is going to be over. And it's with these things in mind that we find the Apostle Paul writing to the church in Philippi. Right? He's at the end of his race, as far as he's able to tell. He's in jail. This is one of the prison epistles. He's writing to the people that make up the church in Philippi that he planted at the beginning of his missionary journey. And these are people that are, as far as we are able to tell, very relatable. They're ordinary people. The city of Philippi was a Roman colony, right? They had a a comparatively a pretty good economy. It was where you would want to go if you were going to be in business. They had low taxes, right? Everybody likes low taxes compared to other places, again, because of their status as a Roman colony. And they were full, it was a city that was full of hardworking and entrepreneurial people. And so in many ways we think of the greater Nashville area. Sure, there are limitations. Uh, Perhaps they were facing more pressure for the sake of the gospel than we are. But there's a lot of similarities. We find this group of people very relatable. What's more important though to understand is that as we find them relatable, perhaps they didn't quite find the Apostle Paul's life as relatable. He was a man who had poured out his life for Christ, spent the last 25 years traveling around the world, preaching the gospel, suffering many hardships. And this was a group of just ordinary people that were trying to be faithful to the gospel, faithful to Jesus Christ. That's the context in which we find our passage as the Apostle Paul enters into what might very well be his final trial, he wants this group of ordinary people to learn something from his experience. And so with that, we'll turn to Philippians chapter 1, reading in verse 18b through 27. Hear the word of the Lord. Yes, and I will rejoice For I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell." I am hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, 
for that is far better, but to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. Let's pray. O great God of heaven, we're here once again gathered as your church. We're here to worship you, to lift up the name of Christ. It's our desire, Lord, that in everything Christ would be glorified. And so I pray that this morning, that even through this message, Christ would be glorified. Lord, I ask for your help. I want to be nothing more than a vessel and a mouthpiece for you, so get me out of the way and hide me behind the cross. Deliver a better sermon than the one that I have prepared. That's my hope for this morning. And I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so Paul is awaiting trial in prison. Some scholars think in Rome. Others would say in Ephesus. Others still in Corinth. My inkling is that this is Rome. This is that final test. The final trial. As Paul is nearing the end of his life, he knows that even though he doesn't know the exact day or the hour in which he's going to be sent to Christ, he is going to be face-to-face with his Lord before very long. And we need to understand that to be in prison in Rome was not something you would do to serve time. That's not how the legal system worked. The only people in prison in Rome were those who were waiting to die. This was effectively death row. You were either waiting trial or you were waiting to be executed. But it was a time of waiting, not a time of serving. And it's in this context then that the Apostle Paul is giving us his farewell address. He's contemplating the end of his life, and in true Pauline fashion, having given up himself for the glory of Christ and the building up of the church, there's something that he wants ordinary believers to understand as he's getting ready to stand face to face with his Lord. And it seems like a surprise to us then that Paul would be thinking joyful thoughts, doesn't it? Because if you're standing on the cusp of eternity, you're thinking a lot more about what's behind you than what's ahead of you, aren't you? You're thinking about the regrets, perhaps the sins that you've struggled with all your life. But that's not where Paul's head is at. No, he's thinking about going to Jesus and about how he can have a positive impact on the church with his time left. And so he's not simply enduring this trial then. But through the prayers of other believers and with the Spirit's help, Paul actually resolves to rejoice in his darkest hour. And it's for the cause of Christ and his glory. And so this joy then we have to recognize is supernatural. And before we can dive into this text, first we have to understand a little bit about the man Paul and what makes up the man. What's going on in his mind, right? He spent the last 25 years traveling around the world preaching and teaching about Christ. He's written these 
numerous epistles that contain all of the deep theology that we do, we write pages and pages and pages of books about even today. This is where the rubber meets the road. This is where Paul is applying the theology that he's taught for so long. And so we have to recognize before we begin to walk through the passage that Paul is applying what he taught. In other words, theology matters, and he believed every word that he spoke. Well, he believed first in the attributes of God, and these are, these are the easy things, the low-hanging fruit. This is where we would often go to comfort another believer who's in the middle of a trial, right? We speak to them of God's faithfulness, his wisdom, his power, and the fact that he is sovereign, we would speak of God as love himself, as the book of 1 John tells us, right? And of course, the goodness of God is incredibly important when we enter into the trial and we consider our own circumstances, the things that are outside of our control, that's when we begin to question, is God good? And the answer, according to scripture, is absolutely yes, we need to remember this is the man who wrote the words under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit that we know for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. And so whether it's painful, whether it hurts, whether we enjoy it or not, God is doing good to us. And of course in 1 Corinthians 10.13, he is faithful to provide a way of escape. And we see Paul in a very exposed moment pleading with the Lord in 2 Corinthians 12, 8 through 10 that God would take away the thorn in his flesh and what's God's response to him? Accept that my grace is sufficient for you and that in your weakness my power is put on display. That's my paraphrase, but you understand, you know this passage. But Paul believed in more than just the attributes of God. And as he's sitting there in prison contemplating his own death, where does he go? But to the death of Christ. Paul believed that Christ's death is our death. And I want you to see this. Turn with me to Romans chapter 6. Verses 5 through 13. Romans 6 verses 5 through 13. For we have been united with him in a death like his. We shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. And we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Well, there it is. We are united with Christ in his death. And as you begin to work through the Pauline epistles, you see this theme coming up over and over and over. It's more than just this theoretical head knowledge that he has. This is the doctrine of particular redemption with shoe leather on it. This is no mere offer of salvation. This is redemption applied and completed in the individual believer. It's the song that we sing my name was graven on his hands. My name was written on his heart. Christ's death was our death. And for those who come to him with faith that Christ is risen from the dead and who repent of their sin, that 
leads us to, un- to being unified with Christ in his death. And through that death, then, we are transformed. Our desires, our thoughts, and our will are being renewed or made new. We're being transformed from one degree of glory to another, it says in the book of 2 Corinthians. Namely, because of the death of Christ and being united with him in his death, we are putting off the old man and putting on Christ. And so understanding Christ's death as our own then is essential for the Christian life. This is not only what motivates us to holiness, but it's also what gives us the understanding that our sins really are forgiven. Right? Who you were before Christ and all of the sins that held you captive, they no longer define you. They don't have a hold over you. And of course, you may still have to deal with the consequences of those sins, but they don't define your identity. Everyone who is in Christ is being made new. And just as a sidebar, identity is a a buzzword today, isn't it? And yet, don't we see... Don't we see how identity has become such an idol in our culture that we would define people by the ways in which they rebel against God? And don't we see then that if we are in Christ, being united with him in his death, that the only identity that matters is that you are a child of God? That's how we need to approach the discussion on identity in our culture And as a child of God, we have been crucified with Christ. And so functionally then, we are to act as though we have already died. Well, this is Paul's theology throughout his letters, not only here in the book of Romans, but in Galatians chapter 2. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In this life that I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Or what about Colossians 3, 1 through 3? If you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above where Christ is seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on the earth. For you have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And so this is the central truth then that is motivating Paul as he's enduring all these trials and hardships over 25 year long missionary ministry that we are united with Christ in his death by faith. Therefore we bury the old man and we put on Christ as new life. And this is what gives hope then for the addict and the prostitute and this gives hope to the ones who have been abused and are grieving because the old life is buried. It's dead. It is unified with Christ. It has been crucified. So now you are set free from that and you put on Christ as your new life. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away and the new has come. 2 Corinthians 5.17 And the third pillar of Paul's theology that would cause him to endure all of these hardships and tribulations is that he believed that Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. 
And so going back to the text in Romans chapter 6, we see in verse 8, now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. And so we not only experience death to self in Christ, but we experience eternal life. Jesus came saying things like, For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. It's John 6, 40, and in John 14, verse 3, And I go to prepare a place for you. I will come again and will take you to myself, that where I am you may be as well. And so for Christians, we understand that Christ is our life. Again, functionally, the old man is dead. And we need to stop trying to dig up his bones. He's buried. Let him be there. Put on Christ. He is our life. And he's gone ahead of us to prepare a place in glory. One day, our spirit is going to depart from our body. This shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. There are two things in life that are certain, and that's death and taxes. But our spirit is going to depart from our body. We're going to leave this world behind. And of course, our loved ones are going to mourn for us. But we're going to stand in the presence of the glory of Christ and see our Creator face to face in a place where there's no more sin or shame to dwell. Heaven is God's promise to those who repent and believe in Him for salvation. Romans chapter 10 telling us that if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised Him from the dead, then you shall be saved. Only in Christ is there the complete forgiveness of sin. Only in Christ is there hope of eternal life. This is what we must believe This is what the Apostle Paul believed, 25 years of missionary ministry. And now, these are the pillars of his theology, and this is the the hope that he's clinging to. This theology that he's been teaching for the last two and a half decades is now more real than ever before. And so it's because of who God is and what he's done, that Paul is not afraid to live life as one who has already died because he's in Christ. He's not looking backwards to what was or to what could have been. No, he's constantly pressing forward towards the upward call of God in Christ. He's running the race, but he's running as one who is motivated completely by the glory of Christ because he's already died. And sooner or later, that race is going to come to an end. And he's already settled that in his mind. These truths are not just facts. They're convictions. And it's these convictions that give him the resolution to be continuously joyful even in the most anxiety-depressing place on earth. His focus then is to glorify God, to preach the gospel, and to build up the church. And he sees himself then as one who has died, as being nothing more than a vessel by which God would demonstrate his glory. That's the attitude of the Christian. 
we are to see ourselves in the same way. We are nothing more than vessels by which God would demonstrate his glory as those who have been crucified with Christ and have put on Christ as our life. Our focus is going to be upwards or it's going to be outwards, but it should never be on ourself. It's either the glory of Christ or the glory of Christ through the edification of the church. We exist to bring him glory. We exist to call others to eternal life. That is our life. Well, Paul, seeing himself in this way then as having been crucified with Christ as an obedient vessel, a tool in the hand of the Redeemer, he goes to the Lord. I mean, you know he's, he's human, Right? And as he's sitting in this dire situation, he's wrestling with these things. Just because that doesn't make it into his letter, that doesn't mean that he's a robot without emotions. But what does he tell us then? Where does his joy come from? It's supernatural joy. It's joy that comes from the help of the Holy Spirit and the prayers of other believers. And by the way, we've been talking about prayer for the last two weeks in our first hour. You're talking about seeing in the scripture somewhere that prayer made a difference. Other believers were praying for Paul as he's sitting there in this jail cell on death row. And as a result, the Holy Spirit is pleased to take their prayers and use them to give him joy so that God would continue to be glorified. Our prayers matter. Prayer is critical for the Christian. That's why we gather on Wednesday nights to pray. I mean, just imagine if you were in that same position. Would you endure the trial if no one was praying for you? How do you expect your brothers and sisters to endure the trials in their life if you don't pray for them? And so this is supernatural joy. It's not ordinary. It's a word that means kind of calm happiness, but sometimes just the the construction of words is not always helpful. When we see Paul speaking of joy in the New Testament, it begins to look a lot more like the relentless hope in Christ, regardless of circumstances, than simply being happy all the time. In fact, it's in some of the most depressing moments in life that we learn the true meaning of joy. When we have nothing left and we're completely dependent upon God and we look up and we see with our heart's eye the glory of Jesus Christ and that's all that we have to hold on to, then we begin to understand the true meaning of joy. It's this relentless trust in Christ in spite of his imprisonments, beatings, stonings, exile, shipwrecks, the broken body that he's carrying around from all of those things over the last 25 years, losing his sight, and don't forget the emotional strife that just comes with being in ministry. It's overwhelming when you consider I would not have the strength to endure that kind of trial on my own. This joy is supernatural. That's the only explanation for how the Apostle Paul could refuse to take his eyes off of Christ in the middle of all his hardships. 
Where does it come from? How does he get this strength? Well, going back then to the book of Philippians chapter 1, we see that he's rejoicing because he knows for the, that through the, the prayers and the help of the Holy Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for his deliverance. Well, this word deliverance in the ESV is soteria, and it, in pretty much every other place in the scripture, it refers to the salvation of the soul. It's spiritual salvation or final salvation. And so we, we're tempted to think that, oh, Paul's looking for his deliverance. He's been praying and he's been a good boy, so God's going to get him out of jail this time. Is that how prayers work? Understanding then that God is good and he chooses to leave Paul in this jail cell. After all, what did God give the message to Ananias to tell Paul about when his ministry was first beginning? Acts chapter 9, when he was called as an apostle on the road to Damascus, he sends Ananias to Paul and he says, I want you to tell him that I'm going to show him how much he's going to suffer. That's not competing with God's goodness. That is because of God's goodness that he is working out faith and sanctification in the Apostle Paul through these trials and tribulations. And so Paul is not looking for the salvation of his body. He's not looking for God to set him free from jail, although there have been other times where that's happened. He's looking forward to the final moment when his life on this earth would be over and his soul goes to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. And he has assurance of that. This is his rewarding glory, the the finish line in the race that his theology says he will cross because God is faithful. It's as though he's saying, no, no matter what happens to me, either way, my soul is going to live. And in that, I find the freedom to rejoice. This is a man who's not afraid to die. And it made me think of the missionary Jim Elliott, and I know that most of you are probably familiar with this story, but they were commissioned in the 1950s to go to the Waranai people in Ecuador. It was a, a, a tribe that was known to be somewhat hostile, but they didn't know how hostile. They were basically uncontacted, certainly unreached. And after a while of trying to make peaceful contact, they make the decision that today's the day we're going to go in and try to establish a relationship with these people so that we can tell them about Jesus Christ and how they can have their sins forgiven and how they can have the same hope in heaven that we do. And as they were getting ready to go in, they, as a group, made the decision that they weren't going to take any weapons because they did not want to damage the testimony of Jesus Christ. And you know what that decision cost them? Their lives. They were martyred on the beach. They never made it into the jungle. Of course, if you know the story, you know that uh, another group went back in later and because... Those men did not fight back. That tribe has been evangelized. Anyway, 
I'm getting emotional. <laughs> but Jim Elliot wrote or said shortly before they took off, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain that which he cannot lose. You see what happens when you rightly understand our place when you rightly understand that we have been crucified with Christ and we put off the old man and we put on Christ and our whole life is spent seeking His glory, we deal with our fear of death. And we become willing then to pour out our lives as a willing sacrifice for the glory of Christ because He is our life. We spend so much energy in this life trying to keep that which we cannot. Faster than a blink of an eye, this life is going to be over. Jesus says in Mark eight thirty five, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. Jesus is not just saying this for fun. It's the truth. You cannot keep your life. Christians are those who are willing and have often been called to give their lives in service to their King, Jesus. We don't think like that today. We don't face the kinds of pressures that would make us believe that this is actually reality. In the United States of America, we live in a spiritual Disneyland. No other place in the world or in history has had it as good as we have it right now. To be a Christian historically has been a dangerous thing. But that giving of their lives, all the saints in church history, certainly including the Apostle Paul, they did not give their lives in vain. Jesus promised them a great reward. And Paul understood that and he trusted in God's goodness and faithfulness. He was ready to stand before Jesus Christ, his Savior. He knew him, and he believed that God was good in whatever circumstance that he would use to bring his servant home. So Paul, seeing himself as already dead, is nothing more than a tool in the hand of the Master Redeemer, and he's looking forward to the glory which is to come. Well, I think it's only appropriate at this point to ask the question, have you made peace with the fact that you're going to lose this life? Do you fear death? Have you come to realize that this world is not our home? In order to be useful to Christ, we should conquer our fear of death. And the only way that it's going to be conquered is through spirit-wrought joy in the midst of our trials and looking to Christ who is our life. We should not be concerned with fighting for this life, but rather looking forward to the presence of Christ. And so Paul is enjoying the assurance here through the help of the Spirit and the prayers of other believers And he explains what this joyful faith is for our benefit. Going on down the page a little bit to verse 20, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not at all be ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. 
And so this eager expectation and hope that Paul has is a, a phrase. It's a little bit of an idiomatic expression. It appears um, in a few other places always together. It's apokaradokia, kai elpida. I know that you all are fluent in Greek and everything. I'm kidding. That's a joke. Uh, but it's a, a particular construction here. And it's visualizing Someone straining to see around something, right? And you think of as you're pulling up to a traffic jam and you get stuck behind an 18-wheeler, what do you do when when you're sitting there for a minute? You roll down the window and you stick your head out, at least I do, because you're trying to see what's on the other side of that truck. That's this action. That's what this eager expectation and hope is that Paul has. He's straining his neck, looking forward, to his heavenly reward. He says he will not be ashamed. And so we, we, we need to look at what does it mean to be ashamed. This is not... Remember, this is an Eastern context and the concept of shame is a little bit different. It's public. This is not private, internal sense of embarrassment. To be ashamed... And at least in Paul's writing here, is to acknowledge your defeat before your enemies. Execution in the Roman Empire would have involved public shaming before being put to death. Paul says he's not going to be ashamed. That's his hope. Right? And we think of the, the 23rd Psalm, one of the most famous in the book of Psalms, 23.5, you prepare a table before me, in the presence of my enemies. So this is the opposite of the kind of shaming that the Apostle Paul is talking about here. And though David would walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he has no fear because God is with him. And so we see God shaming the enemies of David, even though he lives a dangerous life. God has a rod and a staff to protect and correct, and this is comfort for the child of God. And so even though the Apostle Paul's situation is dire, it is going to turn out for the salvation of his soul and the glory of Christ. And that's all he cares about. With God as his protector, he cannot die until the moment arrives when God has fixed that he would leave this earth and go home. And so rather than worrying about what will happen to his body, he chooses to focus on the glory of Christ in his suffering. And with full courage then, we see now as always his desire is to be that Christ would be honored in his body, whether by life or by death. Now this full courage is not some kind of inner virtue of strength by which he's going to pull himself up by the bootstraps and not wimp out at the last minute. No, this is the freedom of speech or the frankness of speech. Right? And keep in mind, this is a day when we're moving towards Christians being killed on the side of the road because they refuse to greet Roman soldiers with the phrase, Kaiser Kurios, Caesar is Lord, due to their deep conviction that Jesus Christ is the only Lord. In fact, he's the Lord of Lord and Lords and the King of Kings. So, what's Paul's plan then at this point? With his full courage? He's going to go into Caesar's court and he's going to tell Caesar that there is a king who is greater than he and that he died and he rose again. 
And I don't know about you, but if your plan is staying alive, that's probably not the best idea. He had no fear. But he understood that when this passing world is over, he was going to rest safely in the arms of Jesus Christ, his Savior. When we think about our lives, we either have had, are having, or will have trials and tribulations in this life. Things that we don't want to endure, whether they're persecutions, being ostracized because of our refusal to turn away from following Jesus Christ, people that think we're weird because we don't do certain things, or because we do do certain things. But perhaps it's even things like a, um, a, a medical diagnosis that you don't want to hear about, right? Or an, uh, one that cannot be explained in some cases. Other sufferings where we lose jobs and we lose loved ones. We receive bad news. We've got two options when we enter into this kind of trial. The first is we can fight to preserve our life and therefore buck against the sovereignty of God. Or we can use this trial to shine the glory of Christ brightly in the midst of a dark and dying world. We have opportunities then to speak words of life when we enter into the trial. Right? Don't weep for me. I'm going home. Know Christ and meet me there. This wheelchair is not everything that there is. Jesus is making all things new. I forgive you because Christ forgave me. You see how being a vessel who is used for the glory of God makes a difference in our lives and the way that we respond to the trial? Moving along in the text, we come to this, one of the most famous verses in the New Testament. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. We need to understand something because there's, there's something going on in this text that's not immediately apparent to our eyes. This is a grammatical structure that's very intentional and very ordered to make us understand a comparison between two good options and then invite contemplation. It's called a a sugkerasis. And so I want to make sure that we understand the apostle is not dithering back and forth over which is the better option here. He's not in a moment of despair and wondering, well, should I desire to go be with Christ or should I desire to stay here in this life? And that's the way that we would tend to read this passage. But that's not what's going on. He's inviting the church, using his own life as an object lesson, to prepare them for eternity. And so the elements of this structure is a choice. And we see that in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. Those are our two options. And then in verse 22, we see the comparatives. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me. Implicitly, if I am to go on to glory, that's not fruitful labor for me anymore. That would be rest. The third element of this structure is to construct the order with the second option as the preferred one. And that's why I say the Apostle Paul was completely clear 
on what was the best option. Between two good options and making a comparison here, he was crystal clear on the fact that the best option was to go to be with Christ. And then in verses 22 through 24, we see him contemplating these two options, which is where he invites the church that he's writing to, and indeed the church today, to enter into this process of contemplation. Do we really believe that to go be with Christ is better? Or do we go through the motions of the Christian life, but deep in our heart, we're still holding on very tightly to this world? And so through this contemplation, then he invites the church to wrestle with his trial and the reality that they're going to die one day. And he tells them that to depart and be with Christ is best. But notice what he does. He is so focused on the glory of Christ that he does not prefer the best option for himself. The best option would be to go ahead and have his spirit depart from his body, go to be safely in the arms of Jesus Christ, his Savior. But that's not what he prefers in this section. He prefers to stay, to see the the church in Philippi grow up into spiritual maturity, again, for the glory of Jesus Christ. And so he would actually put off going to his home, his heavenly home where Christ is in order that Christ would be glorified on the earth just a little while longer. He would rather continue with the beatings, imprisonments, dangerous journeys, his broken body and the gossip that he is constantly, constantly victimized by in order that others may know Christ and grow in the faith. But this section also teaches us something very important about the experience of dying that I don't think that we should gloss over. Because he uses this word to depart. And we have to understand that this is a a word that gives us another picture. For some, it was to enter a ship in order to leave the harbor and go to another destination. For the Apostle Paul, it could have also been used to take down a tent and go to another location. He was a tent maker after all. But either way, it's about a journey. When we die, we are leaving, not ceasing. Our spirit departs from our body, and the way that the scripture teaches us about this is that it's as though we move from one home to another. And I hope that for those of you that are grieving this morning, that that would be a relief For those who would grieve a person who was in Jesus Christ, they went to another home, but they're not lost. And for those who would find themselves on the cusp of eternity, as eventually we all will, this must be our hope, right? That as our life is fading, they talk about everything growing dim. However it happens, we trust that we are moving from one home to another. And we hear discussions often today of people that would say, well, when I die, I don't know about all the heaven and hell stuff, but I know that I'm going in the ground. That's not true. Your body will be buried, yes. But that's not you. And we need to understand that you 
will go to either be with Christ, resting safely in his arms as your Savior, or you will be under his heel as his enemy. But either way, you will continue to live in eternity. The difference is whether or not you believe in Christ and his resurrection and are following him. And I have to say that in our day, in the Bible belt in which we live, it's so important that we recognize it seems like everyone believes, but not many are following. Oh, how I wish that people could see that their soul is in grave danger because they confess to know Christ, but they do not love him. They will stand before the king when it's all said and done, as each and every one of us will. And at that moment, they will either hear, well done, my good and faithful servant, enter into your final rest. Or they will hear what Matthew seven twenty one tells us that not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. You understand then that this teaches that it's not merely a profession It's not about an altar call. It's not about raising your hand in a service. It's not about filling out a card or going to vacation Bible school or church camp. It's not even about being baptized and taking the Lord's Supper. It's about whether or not you know and love Jesus Christ. Perhaps the better question to ask is, does he know you? One who has been saved and given a new heart will live a changed life. We cannot forget that and we cannot minimize that. We are people who turn from sin and turn to Christ. And if that's you this morning, you're here with us worshiping and you believe in the facts that Jesus is raised from the dead, but you're not following him, my prayer is that you would confess your need to be made new and that you would begin to walk in the newness of life. Because that life can never be taken from you. And this life is coming to an end. But we see Paul then, who is absolutely resolute that his life is no longer about him. He believed that he died with Christ and by putting off the old man and putting on Christ, he joyfully endured all things for the glory of God. The second point this morning as we seek to divide this text well. First, we had Christ's exaltation. Second, we have the church's edification or the building up of the church. We won't spend very much time here. We need to bring it to a close. But I want to point out that Christ is glorified through faithfulness in the local church. Paul's concern was only for the glory of God, whether it be in his personal life or in the life of the church. But he was not concerned about himself. He was so selfless that it was better to continue in the hard labor of ministry than to go to be with Christ right now because that means more glory for Jesus. What a foreign perspective. I hope that's challenging to us this morning that we would be so consumed with the glory of Christ that nothing else matters, not even our life itself. And so 
We see this fruitful labor as ministry work. It's used, it's a phrase, the presence of this word. Ergon is used to signal pastoral or ministry work, and so Paul is going to remain, that is to stay alive, and he's going to continue, which carries the connotation of serving in an office, whether it be in the church, the priesthood, or politics, whatever. It's like being elected to another term, if you will. I know that analogy falls short in several ways, but you get the picture. So it raises the question then, how is Christ glorified in the local church? And the answer to that is through the growth of the saints qualitatively and quantitatively. That means through their sanctification and through their evangelism and seeing new converts to the faith coming to know Jesus Christ and eternal life for the first time. And is this progress then that he's talking about is the picture of growing into Christ. Remember, our old self has been crucified with Christ and we're putting on the new self. We wear Christ like a jacket. It's an oversized coat that we have to grow into. And that's the progress that we're making as the Lord is sanctifying his church. The Christian life is a lifetime of cleaning out the idol factory, which is our heart. It begins with the obvious first steps. Repent of your deceit, your thievery, and your sexual immorality. Those things that are obvious, which when one has come to the faith, the Spirit of God testifies to them they can no longer walk in because those things belong to a dead man. But as we continue to grow and spend time as a Christian, we begin to see other things, that other sins that are at the root of, of all of those other things that are lodged firmly in our heart. And it's a lot harder to let go of our pride and our lust. But by His grace and the power of the Holy Spirit, God uses these trials to shape His children and to prepare them for their eternal dwelling place. Church, we are being prepared as a bride adorned for her husband, it says in the book of Revelation, chapter 21, verse 2. God is sanctifying us through trials, Rejoice, brothers, when the fiery trial comes upon you, it says in the book of James. Why should we rejoice if not for the fact that we're being made into the image of Christ and that through our suffering, the purity of our testimony and our resolute hope that there is something more than just what we can see around us right now, others would be drawn to Christ. He wrote this because Christ is glorified by the building of the church through faithfulness in suffering. And when Christians are resolved to live a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way, as it says in 1 Timothy 1-2, especially in the trial, that kind of faith is contagious. This is how we deal with the fear of death. And when we deal with the fear of death, which must be conquered in our lives, then we are free to tell others that Jesus is King. We are free to tell others about the eternal life that we are promised. We are free to tell others that we have been crucified with Christ. We are put off the old man. I'm not who I was because Christ now is my life. This is how we embrace the call to be light to the world in a city on a hill that cannot be hidden. 
perhaps you would understand that sometimes God gives us trials for the sole purpose that you would glorify God through your testimony of faithfulness. I want to say that again. Perhaps you would understand that sometimes God gives us trials for the sole purpose that you would glorify him through your testimony of faithfulness. And of course, we don't seek suffering, but we understand that suffering is a means by which God has appointed the growth of the Christian and the growth of the church. And in that growth, Christ is glorified. Does that give you joy when you enter into the trial? Does that bring peace to you to know that you're a vessel being used in the hands of the Redeemer for his ultimate good purpose? Does that bring comfort to your weary soul, knowing that if you belong to God, he cares enough to shape you into the form of his beloved son, who was known as the suffering servant? And so, as we conclude then this morning, we are called upon by the scripture, by the Apostle Paul in these very words, to live lives that are worthy of the gospel of Jesus Christ, to be faithful to share the good news of what God has done, and that is how we glorify God. There's a temptation to be radical and to be so focused on doing radical things for Jesus that living the ordinary Christian life almost becomes radical in and of itself. God doesn't need you to be radical. He needs you to be faithful. The reality is that in the United States of America, our lives are a lot more like the Philippians than they are the Apostle Paul's. Right? We get up in the morning, we go to work, we do our best to raise a family and to honor God. We go to church on Sunday, Lord willing, time permitting, Wednesday as well. And we get into this rhythm week in and week out. And it seems dull and ordinary. But that is actually where Christ would call upon most of us to glorify him. Even though the Philippians probably weren't facing the kind of extreme situation that the Apostle Paul was, he still wants them to contemplate his response to suffering and trial but I don't think that he expected the whole church in Philippi to, to get on a bus and go to Rome and testify before Caesar alongside him, line up to put their heads on the chopping block. No, I think that he wanted them to understand something through his life about the ordinary Christian life. He's calling them to embrace the death of Christ, putting off the old man and putting on the new man in every area of life, in the mundane, day in and day out, not just on Sunday morning, but on Monday through Saturday too. And it's only by putting off the old man and putting on Christ that we can have genuine spirit-wrought joy in the midst of our suffering and trials. And so we enjoy life as a dead man, no longer living for ourselves, but that in every circumstance Christ would be glorified and that we would work for the edification of the church. And I say that with one small disclaimer, that I don't want to let you off the hook. I pray that the Spirit would so move among us to raise up faithful men and their families to go to the mission field, 
to be involved in ministry full-time, to carry the testimony of the gospel forward to the next generation. That needs to be done for the glory of God. And we cannot accomplish the mission if comfort is our focus. And the reality is, most men don't keep from going to the mission field because they're scared to die. Most men keep from going to the mission field because they're scared of being uncomfortable. And so if God is calling on you to stop your ladder climbing and throw out your five-year plan, even in retirement, then embrace your death in Christ and live for his glory. But this call is something that's identified by the sufficient word and it's confirmed by the church. It's not just desire. There's a process in which these things need to play out. And for the majority of you who are not called to this kind of ministry, you don't need to feel guilty for not trying to cram yourself into a particular calling that God has not given you. It's not just what spiritual people do. And so be faithful. That's the key. Be faithful wherever God has placed you. Be faithful with the kind of faithfulness that endures, the kind of faithfulness that works hard, the kind of faithfulness that leads worship for your family on a daily basis, the kind of faithfulness that refuses to look at porn and won't allow impure thoughts to come into your mind, the kind of faithfulness that would open your home for fellowship and to care for the widow and the orphan and the women at the pregnancy care center the kind of faithfulness that would use your gifts to serve in the church because all Christians should be serving in the church. This is the kind of faithfulness that loves to gather on the Lord's Day week in and week out and to gather for prayer with their brothers and sisters. It's the kind of faithfulness that resolves to glorify God in our body, with our mind, with our possessions, with our time, and in our relationships. The Apostle Paul's chief motivation for spirit-wrought joy was his dedication to the glory of Christ himself and the edification of the church. And so he writes then, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be ashamed, but that with full courage, now and as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. And our Lord tells us, rejoice and be glad, for great is your reward in heaven. To Christ be the glory. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we love you, Lord. I pray that as a church we would see you so highly exalted, so high and lifted up, that we would live our lives in such a way that we are just consumed by your glory. That we would esteem you as the pearl of great price the one who is worth selling everything for in order to follow that we may have eternal life. Lord, these truths are so important for us to wrestle with and to plant deeply in our hearts because it's only by working for your glory and anticipating our heavenly reward that we can endure with faithfulness to the end. Lord, I pray that you would use this message some way, somehow. We love you, God. We pray this in the name of Christ. Amen.